This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Yoga therapy is a means to utilize the various tools of yoga, intelligent movement, breath, meditation, visualization, and lifestyle to facilitate an individual's healing process. Essential Yoga Therapy offers a gentle, therapeutic orientation to yoga that is supportive of those with limited mobility. The springboard for developing our programs arises from the same fundamental teachings of yoga, that we bear responsibility for reducing suffering in ourselves. And once we have achieved a level of health, we are to be in service to others. Whether you are entering our door as a client or a student teacher, the EYT orientation will help you to grow in wisdom and self-awareness, assisting you in living a more conscious, joyful, and fulfilling life. Valeria interviews Robin Rothenberg, the author of Restoring Prana, a therapeutic guide for yoga teachers, therapists, and healthcare practitioners. One of the most common issues clients face is lack of energy, vitality, or prana, and this book presents a simple yet revolutionary breathing approach to restore balance. Grounded in the yogic teachings, this text introduces the Buteyko breathing method as a more contemporary way of understanding the original intention of pranayama. Through extensive research, Robin Rothenberg establishes that as with Dr. Buteyko's breathing retraining technique, the ancient yogis prescribed breathing less, not more. Vedic science and physiology are broken down and explained in accessible ways. The book presents a new understanding and application of breathing to address a wide range of ailments including COPD, asthma, hay fever, autoimmune disorders, anxiety, sleep apnea, and neurological conditions. Robin Rothenberg is deeply involved in yoga therapy and research since 2000. Robin runs a thousand-hour accredited yoga therapy training program and a busy private practice outside Seattle, Washington. Her unique weave of traditional Vedic teachings and practices with Western science create an orientation towards yoga that is accessible, practical, and transformational. Restoring Prana has received wide acclaim globally for grounding the esoteric teachings of pranayama in a scientific framework that allows practitioners to experience the healing power of the breath and reclaim the vital energy of life. Her website is essentialyogatherapy.com. 
www.thepodcastnetwork.com. Here is the interview with Robin Rothenberg. In your own words, who is Robin Rothenberg? Uh, well, let's see. You know, like most of us, I have many facets. I'm a mother of two fabulous daughters and grandmother. I'm a wife, and I have artistry and writing in my in my vocabulary of my life's loves. But really, in terms of my profession, I'm a certified yoga therapist. And uh, I work with people with chronic pain and chronic health issues, and I train yoga teachers at the at a thousand hour level for um, to become certified yoga therapists themselves. So I have a private practice, and then I also have my professional training programs. And my specialty in the last four years have has been centered around pranayama and the breath. Wonderful, thank you, Robin. So before we talk about some of the topics in your book, Restoring Prana, a Therapeutic Guide for Yoga Teachers, Therapists, and Healthcare Practitioners, I have a few warm-up questions, as I mentioned, off record. What is another word for breath? This is a tricky question. Oftentimes, the term prana is used interchangeably with the breath. However, it's not quite apples to apples. Prana is a way of evoking or moving prana through our body, but prana exists and breath exists and they have a relationship with one another, but they aren't interchangeable. Wow. The breath is actually much more complex and prana is subtle, which means it's not as, I mean, like the breath you could say is a gross manifestation of prana, but prana itself is actually much more subtle and has much more to do with the physiologic shifts that support our vital well-being, our physiologic, um, the movement of digestion and elimination and circulation and uh, nervous system reflex and all of that in the yoga and Ayurvedic texts is governed by prana and breath impacts that tremendously. The breath is not that. Oh, wow. And I do have that question, specific question later on, but I think I should ask you now then. So prana, would that be closer to ether? No. Prana, the closest that I think most people have a sense of is the term chi. So from Chinese medicine, the term chi, or in Hebrew, ruach, which has to do with more of the animating life force that supports vitality. So that makes me think about the soul, the spirit. <laughs> would that be another way of thinking about it? I would say this with regard to the discussion of breath for health. It is more closely aligned with the support of our physiology, our physiologic health and well-being. So it's a little bit one step uh, less subtle than spirit and soul, and it's also a doorway into that realm. So everything's connected, as we know. So by working the breathing, then we help the prana that might help the spirit. I like that connection. 
Um, so let me continue with my uh, warm-up questions. The next ones refers to life, the next ones, actually, next four questions. Uh, what is life itself? What is life to you? It's a, it's a big question. I think that there's so many components to life. I mean, on the base, basic level, if your heart's beating and you're breathing, you're alive. However, quality of life and whether there's a sense of fulfillment, a sense of, of vitality, the, the light or fire of livelihood, I don't mean that in the wealth and livelihood, but in the aliveness of spirit, that animating force, that's a whole nother level of exploring and, and pondering what life is. And I think um, in my work, uh, my orientation is to help people who often have chronic or even terminal conditions that the condition in itself might inhibit what they're able to do and affect their quality of life. And even within that, we find ways to support them in ex re-experiencing or reigniting that sense of aliveness and perspective, a capacity to regain their enthusiasm and their joy. Right. It makes sense to me. Yeah. So being life, being this experience of being well, of exploring health and all kinds of health, mental, spiritual, right? Physical. And I want to clarify because um, I've, I've studied deep and long and I'm a, I'm a scientifically based minded person. So I have a strong spiritual leaning and I'm also the person saying, okay, and where's the proof? You know, like, <laughs> let's look at and investigate further. I, you know, yeah. so, you know, like my research on the breath, it, it, you know, it, it, it's scientifically based and, and that's how I came to the the conclusions I came to is not none of it I made up. Um, it it was really based on what with the facts that are out there. So, what I want to say on that is that I'm very clear that first of all we're all going to die. Life ends. There is no beating those odds, and um, people do get sick, and people do have serious health issues, and. There, I'm not one to kind of whitewash that with a sense of like, just think positive thoughts and just eat all your kale and then magically you'll live forever because that's just not how it is. So it's really, my work is really about supporting people to, to find their way through um, whatever challenges that arise within the context of their diagnosis or their, their health challenges and to still find a place of living optimally within that, not like it's magically like we're going to fix it. Some things just aren't fixable. Mm, true. Like that. And one can still live a full and happy, joyful life, or at least have experiences of joy and happiness, even within the parameters of this is a terminal disease and there's no treatment for it. Yeah, I love that about your work, Robin. I respect the uh, very much the scientific side of it because of life. I call it well-being, just trying to kind of maintain this balance and harmony where in every situation where we, we can find some form of joy in whatever state of mind we are in. So that's what I believe in and I love your work. So I have a lot of questions for you, technical questions about the breath. 
But before that, I have to ask you these first. Life. What do you think is the purpose of life, the ultimate purpose of life, of the human experience? Well, the teachings from yoga really guide a lot of what my understanding is because I find there's depth and wisdom that's far beyond my own individual capacity. But this really resonates as the teaching actually comes from the Bhagavad Gita, um, that each and every individual's job is to find their own dharma, their own svadharma, um, their own reason and purpose for being, and that um, the teaching is it's better to live one day true to your own svadharma than attempt to live a lifetime according to someone else's. And so, you know, in terms of purpose, you know, I, I think that's the question for each of us to ask is what is what are my unique gifts and what can I bring forward that will be supportive, whether it's in a, in a way that just touches the individual family members that you know, you're touching or somebody who's intended, whose dharma is to be, you know, a global leader. There's an everything in between. Um, there's no one right answer. It's about finding what feels true and authentic um, to oneself. I think the when one finds that or and it might just it might be more than one thing, you know, like my dharma as a grandmother is very real, but it's very different than my dharma as a yoga therapist. But I wouldn't I wouldn't want to choose. Right. 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 So we can have multiple dharmas. The thing is, is that when we touch into that, which feels like, yes, this is I'm meant to do this. There is a, an internal sense of yes. There's an affirmation that comes from the inside that says, uh, yes, there's a settling into and a alignment with that. Absolutely love your answer. <laughs> and it resonates a lot. Yeah. With the mind and the heart. Beautiful. So my next question is about the mind itself. What do you think the mind is and what do you think thoughts are? <laughs> Yeah, so this is actually the the in, entire teaching of the Yoga Sutra is this. Um, it's really about the turning of the minds, the what's called the vrittis. Same as the root vert, to turn, to spin. And the teaching is that, you know, the mind is basically a, a, a sensory uh, receptor receptacle and relay organ that is taking in sensory information from, you know, the five senses and also from within, not just external sensory, but we, we, we touch and listen and, you know, we hear ourselves talking to ourselves. Um, it's, you know, it's in our mind, but it's in our head, the sounds, we hear our own voice, we look inward, we see, we visualize. So the sensory um, input comes from external source and also internal source. And the mind's job is to take that information and then make sense of it. And the teaching of yoga is this, that we make sense of it based on what's happened in the past. We're not very good at actually just taking the information as it is now. What we're doing, the mind is organized to take information from the past and say, okay, well, this seems like that's a good idea because last time we did that, that was good. And it, then it'll say, wait a minute, don't go there. <laughs> you know, yeah. terrible things happened last time you did that. So right. it's meant to keep us safe. The problem is, is in one way is that the mind is designed to be hypervigilant and always looking to keep us safe, which means it's always busy. And it gets good like everything else in us. It gets good at what it practices. So if we spin or turn our mind consistently towards 
worry or catastrophizing, we get really, really good at worrying and catastrophizing. And if we become able to practice, we practice and become able at shifting that into more of a, of a balanced or more of an objective um, way of seeing, say, maybe from the thousand foot view or even the hundred foot view, as opposed to feeling like we're just in it and um, there's no escape and there are no options and we're just stuck in our loops, um, then we experience some sense of freedom from the tyranny of the mind. So the mind can free us and it can keep us captive. But becoming free requires a lot of diligence and consistent practice, and that's, that's very clear. Left on its own, it will just spin in the direction that it's most frequently turned in the past, right? which often doesn't support us in well-being and health, as you would say. Mm-hmm. So true. And then what would you say thoughts are? So the, the vrittis are these, are, you know, they, they don't always come in language. Sometimes they're flashes of, um, of images that we get, or sometimes they're uh, sensory impulses. Um, vrittis um, fall in the yoga text, they fall under the same category of just these, the, these waves or pulsations or fluctuations, which is basically a dissemination of the mind trying to translate and interpret the sensory input that's coming in and place it in the, this is good, this is a safe category, or this is bad, don't go there category. And just managing um, to protect us, but is actually, unless we practice wise mind, then that's not going to be the place that we go. So we have to, that's where meditation and, and, and mindfulness practices come in. They're actually a way of training our mind to be less like a puppy, you know, to (laughs) access, you know, the inner wisdom that we have available to us, but we, we actually have to practice going there and leaning into that turning towards that as opposed to just moving into our, our, our reactivity. True. If there is something that comes before the mind, we call it awareness, uh, higher consciousness, God, the universe, all lots of words. So I'm wondering if this is separate from the mind and it's not about training the mind, but accessing the deeper, more subtle form of, of existing. Yeah, so the teaching, the two, the two sutras, well, the one sutra that's often quoted in yoga is yoga, chitta, vritti, narodaha. The, the state of yoga is when the chitta, the mind, and it's mind, heart, chitta is mind, heart. It's actually located at the heart center in the yoga teachings. It's not up in the head. Um, so the chitta, um, vritti, the vrittis of the chitta, the turnings of the mind, narodaha, they cease. Okay, so that's the state of yoga, and the practice of yoga is the way to create that quieting or stilling of the mind. And the next sutra, which is often left off, but to me is the other half of the statement, is avastanam, which means that then, it is only then when the mind becomes still that one can access that deeper self, that one can come to know the true essence of being. While the mind is just spinning and and doing its turbulent waves, um, it's too much, it's too much commotion to access it. So the practices of yoga are with the intention to quiet still, calm the mind so that we can come to know that deeper self. I love that, <laughs> the practice, although I never practiced uh, yoga, but I plan to to get started in that. 
And uh, so location, that was my next question. Where's the mind? And you, you answered already. Oh, actually, the mind is everywhere. Like there isn't a cell in our body that isn't mind. But the chitta, that specific term refers more to the heart-mind located in the heart center. I love those uh, those words too, the way you pronounce them. They sound uh, calming almost already. Oh, yeah. The words themselves, how wonderful. Sanskrit is a language that's based on an energetic component of harmonizing with our system, our chakras, our, our energy system. So the sounds actually do have that quality um, to them. I feel it, yeah. And so what is the direct connection between breath and thoughts? You don't have another five hours or five minutes, <laughs> right? You know, this is true. <laughs> I mean, this is the essence. So let me just say this: it's in in, in there's a way of encapsulating it. The yogis figured out, and it's not just the yoga tradition, and you know, the Buddhist tradition, any ancient tradition that it was doing self examination work, deep inner work. Notice that the more the agitated the breath the more agitated the mind. The less agitated, more calm and tranquil the breath, the more calm and tranquil the mind. And that's really it in a nutshell. So, and there's a lot of physiologic, scientific, you know, studies that support this. But all of us, I think, have an experience of being very, um, getting, you know, something like startles us and then we <gasps> gasp and we start doing stress breathing. And then of course the mind goes, Oh my God, that could have just been the worst thing ever. And I could have died or whatever, you know, meanwhile, you're fine. And it was just, you know, a gnat passing by, but you got startled and then the mind spins, 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 and the breath keeps agitating and the mind keeps agitating and then somebody comes by and says wow just why don't you just calm your breath like <laughs> slow it down quiet it and then oh what was all that fuss about you know the breath gets quiet the mind gets quiet so this is the science of pranayama which is the are the breathing practices the, the that are oriented in yoga towards that exact thing calming the mind through the calming of the breath through the settling of the breath Wow. I have interviewed a lot of people and have been uh, now exposed a lot more to the science of the breath for well-being. And I hear that over and over and over. Like even before meditation, the breathing, breathing techniques and breathing methods are more important. So it keeps coming back to the breath. Yes. Well, there's the way I look at it is like this. There's, a, there's meditation practices where you're trying to come into the room of stillness from the mind itself. And when one goes through that process of training the mind to quiet, what happens, of course, in a deep state of meditation is that the breath is barely perceptible. If you ask longtime meditators, how is your breath when you're in a deep state of meditation? None of them say, well, I heave and, you know, laugh. And, you know, they're all like, I don't know, like my breath disappears. It's like sometimes I even can't even feel if I'm breathing. So that's one way into that room. And then in the yoga teachings, the, the progression is it's easier to settle the breath mm. first. And as the breath settles, then the mind settles. So pranayama first. And if one settles and calms the body through some movement, relaxes the body and sinks the body with the breath, then you settle the breath even more. And then what happens is the focus becomes subtle inward 
and the mind just is ready for meditation. So not good or bad, different people prefer different doorways in, but it's the same room we're going to. Right, right. Let me ask you a few more questions. Uh, the next one's about freedom. What is freedom to you? What is to be free? Uh, I would say freedom is freedom to choose. And that's an easy answer. However, I don't necessarily mean it the way that you might be interpreting it or your audience might be interpreting it. What I mean is to choose from a place of presence to say this situation I can assess in and of itself and make it the best choice based on what's happening now. And most of us actually do not experience, we are enslaved and held you know, held in bondage by our past experience, um, our memories, our future projections about, you know, what we think might happen. And we're really held between that wanting something or dis not wanting something based on the experience of the past. Whereas if we are able to be free of that and cultivate the capacity to say, okay, in this moment. This is what's happening, right? No pushback, no grab for, just this is what ha what's happening and what is the most useful way for me to proceed from here. That's freedom. Yeah, I love that, Robin. Absolutely love this idea. Experiences from the past, they help us to understand ourselves in life better and they can become wisdom, So some people call, they call it wisdom. So I'm wondering if there's also room when we are making decisions from and choosing based on what's happening now, if we can also access those um, wisdom lessons that we learned from the past. You know, the thing is, is yes, of course. And that is what all of the wisdom teachings and all of the wisdom traditions are calling upon us to do. However, to do that takes a lot of hard work. It's, it's, it's rolling up our sleeves and sticking our hands right in the muck <laughs> of our beliefs and our opinions and our biases and our prejudice and our mm -hmm. fear and our trauma and cleaning, cleaning it up because All of that will keep us from seeing and responding to what is, as opposed to going into the story about, well, I can't really trust you because last time you blah, 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 or I got hurt or that, you know, didn't end well or whatever. Um, and that, that actually takes us away from wisdom. And the bottom line is we get good at what we practice. So if we practice becoming wise and saying, I, how, what did I learn from that? And how can I shift my energy so I don't get pulled into that same, you know, prison of fear, right? How can I move through that? But that's not easy. And a lot of people hmm, want to get there but aren't necessarily willing to commit to the consistent practice that's required in order to enable them to, to get there. I agree. Yeah, it takes a lot of um, self-awareness, yeah, a lot of work. And my next question has to do with the current situation, which I usually don't talk about, but I'll ask you a, an open question. At this time, what do you think is the world's greatest need? And do you have a vision for a new reality? You know, there's so much that is um, out of balance in our world. 
So to me, COVID and the pandemic and what's happening with people's health is a symptom of the consistent um, drive for more and the, the greed and the desire for consumption that has been held in our global culture as um, that's the be all and end all the happiness um, as opposed to finding that place of where, where, I mean, there's plenty, there's so much abundance in the world, but it's, it's not distributed well. So I think that there's, there's uh, certainly intercultural, inter, interracial imbalance. There's planetary imbalance. Um, there's in, interpersonal within each individual, a lot of what we are, how we're living in life is really out of balance with ourselves, whether they're working too much or um, uh, just not even heeding the messages from our body and our mind saying we need to make a shift, find that dharmic sense of, you know, what am I really here for? However, you know, it's really, a lot of it is a lack of education. What I find is when I talk to people who maybe have never been inclined to yoga and then they come through the door of I've tried everything else and nothing else has helped. And somebody said, try yoga therapy. And so I have to talk about these in, in real life lay terms. I don't do the Sanskrit and all of that. But when I just explain about the balance within and how to balance their energy and prana and start to look at how their choices are affecting them, and people understand this and they're empowered by it. So while it's a very big and pervasive issue and it's the symptoms of the problem are, 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 can be seen everywhere, the education is very personal and we need more people educating children from the beginning about not just nutrition and sleep and, and exercise, which is all very important, but also about that mindful awareness of what's happening inside of you being able to name and claim our own experience, our feelings, not to be like, you know, basically run by them, but rather so that we can understand, oh, this is where I need to go, or this is what I need. This is, I need to challenge myself through this and become more resilient. We need more resilience. Everything in this society is really at a brittle kind of um, edge of disaster. Um, from the interpersonal to the to the macro cosmic. And so I think we all need to stop and slow down, put some pauses in. And the breath is the absolute best way of, of doing that. Just there's pauses in the breath. It's not about inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. That's exhausting. Take input out, take input out, take input out. No, the yogis were very clear. Take time between the breaths, pause, learn how to just, without taking more in, just assimilate what you have taken in, take a pause, sit back. And that's what my book is really pointing to on every level from the most basic fundamental physiology to the more spiritual aspects of the, the wealth that in the richness that is there in the pause. Uh, let me ask you one more question and then ask you some specific questions about breathing. I absolutely love, again, what you said. It is about asking the question individually, what is happening inside of me? You're not always asking what's happening out there or trying to control what's outside of us, but coming back to ourselves. Beautifully said. 
and so true to me. So I have one more question for you, warm-up question. Uh, what is love to you, Robin? I, I think love is, there's an inherent sense of knowing, knowing self or knowing other, knowing that is inherent in love. We, when we love something, there's a sense of knowing and connection with it, whether, like I said, it's with ourselves or we, we love nature. What do we love? There's a sense of under, a way of knowing nature and its cycles and appreciating the beauty of it. So there's a knowingness that comes when we love, when we have a beloved, you know, our first sense is that we feel known by this person and we feel like we know them. So there's knowing that is a, a, uh, uh, an important component to love. And, um, and then that knowingness also, there's a sense of, of passion with passion, compassion, um, a, a sense of care and wanting to care for. So love opens us up to the desire to care. We care for what we know. We care for what we love that is close to us. Yeah, um, I became almost like emotional for some reason as I, I listened to you. So that's interesting. Yeah, that when you talk about the knowing and the connection, the caring. Yeah, wow, it resonates with uh, with everything here. I just want to say one one piece on that, which is, you know, when we make others other, when we make when we divide and we say they're they're not me. They're not us. They don't belong. It's a way of saying, I don't, I don't know. They're not familiar to me. This isn't their way is not familiar to me. I don't know that. So I can't love that. And I'm wondering how we can turn that around and say, okay, I don't know. Right. But bring some curiosity and I'd like to learn, right? Like, I don't know. It is unfamiliar. But rather than shutting the door on that and saying, therefore, they're not lovable, they're not worthy of my compassion, my care, but just like a recognition and acknowledgement. It's true. I don't know. This is unfamiliar. This way of talking, this way of moving, being, dressing, singing, and I'm interested. So I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to know. I'm willing to love. Wow. <laughs> I love your wisdom. Yeah. That's wisdom, right? That's definitely wisdom because we are not, like you said, now we, we are doing the work and we understand these things. Um, that word, understanding, so curiosity and then understanding leads to acceptance and then love itself, right? So let's talk about your work. Um, how did you become a writer and what was the main intention of writing your book, Restoring Prana? So... Um I can hardly remember a time when I didn't write. When I was a little girl, um, uh, words were my everything. I learned how to read when I was four, and I just loved the play of words and um, and rhymes and Dr. Seuss and um, and just. And then by the time I learned how to do handwriting, then I just wanted. I started writing poems and stories and. I had this vision of becoming a writer, and then I grew up and became a teacher, and then I became a yoga teacher, and um, and in the back of my mind, I did some freelance writing while I was doing that, and I always thought, I'll, I'll do both. I'll write and I'll teach, um, but then the teaching became bigger, and, and then and I had children, so I didn't have a lot of time for writing, so there was always that idea that I would write. I always thought what I would write would be a 
book of fiction because I'm passionate about fiction. Um, I never thought I would write a book with whatever it is, 500 citations. Never in a million years do I see myself doing that. However, my, my journey with yoga and yoga therapy and then my own personal journey with the breath, which is really laid out in the book and my, all of my breathing difficulties, um, led me to this uh, scientific study and education of the breath and the physiology of breathing and what functional breathing is versus dysfunctional breathing and that ran really counter to everything I had learned about pranayama and yoga techniques and the importance of taking bigger breaths and louder breaths and and um, extended exhales and all of that. And, and so I was learning all of these facts about breathing that were based on science, not opinion and not like my guru says or my guru says, but just like this is just how, this is how the respiratory system works and this is how the chemistry in our body works. And I was sitting there learning this. And when I was studying with my teacher, my breath teacher in Ireland, um, Patrick McEwen, and I'm thinking, why, why did I not learn this in yoga school? Like we're supposed to be breath experts, but oh my gosh, I, I, I'm training other people to be yoga therapists and work with people with health issues and anxiety and depression and chronic stress. And I didn't know any of this. And my goodness, this information needs to get out there. And then it was like, oh, I get it. That's why I'm here. So as soon as I understand the physiology well enough to communicate it, this is a dharma. You talk about dharma. It was clear to me that it was my dharma. I had to. It wasn't a choice. I had to write the book um, with the intention of educating my colleagues and even some of my teachers um, respectfully, I say that, um, so that what we are sharing about breathing when people come to us as yoga people, teachers, therapists, that we're, what we're actually teaching them is scientifically healthy and not just an idea that we have about this is a cool breath to do because it's kind of fun and dramatic. How did you discover yoga, Robin? Or how did yoga discover you in a way? Yeah, it was more like that, really and truly. I, um, I often say when I when I discovered discovered yoga or yoga tripped tripped me up, um, so I, I noticed it. Um, I I was in pretty a pretty bad state of health. I had just given birth to my second daughter, and I had spent three months on full bed rest with her. So, um, I and my older daughter was twenty two months at the time that she was born. So I had these two babies under the age of two, and 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 had physically been inactive. And I had a lot of chronic health autoimmune issues before that. So um, I saw this yoga, you know, studio in my, in my neighborhood when I was pushing them in the stroller and it said gentle yoga class Monday nights. And I thought, I mean, it was just like one of those things, like you need that, you do that, sign up, sign up for that because you need to do. And, and then, and from the first class, it was like, oh, this is what I've all, I, I understand this. Like I never heard Sanskrit before. I never did downward dog before I did, but somehow I understood like I knew this is what my whole being had been craving, that I needed it like medicine. That's how it felt. Right. And that's what yoga is, medicine, right? We don't often think of that way. 
For me, it is. And, um, you know, and for many people, certainly uh, my clients, I think, would say it's it's definitely part of their treatment plan. And they really get that, you know, people ask my clients and students always ask me, so how often should I practice? And I say, only on the days you want to feel better, only on the days you don't want to have pain, right? Only on the days you want to have in energy only on those days only when you want to have mental equilibrium and 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 feel well regulated um other than that you know who cares right but only on the days you want to feel like that then those are the days you want to practice which of course they all laugh which is the intention yeah right (laughs) but it is it really everything that i hear about yoga it really sounds like that yeah it's a medicine for the body mind and soul let me say it can be and it can also be just um going through the motions of physical exercise and i'm a big fan of physical exercise however yoga done as a physical exercise alone, as opposed to a way to connect to the deeper, more subtle levels of prana and heart and spirit that we've been talking about is really losing the essence and the rich juiciness of what yoga is intended to be, which is a, 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 a practice for transformation of self. Right. That's interesting because this was one of the reasons that drove me away from yoga. I think I would go to a, a class or tried and then I noticed the, uh, it was an exercise and, and it was, um, I felt um, that there was competition happening and this obsession with the body, the body image. And that drove me away from the idea of practicing yoga. And that's, that's a new phenomenon. And it really is not based, there's a lot of yoga teachers that are not trained, unfortunately, are not trained in the teachings that I'm sharing with you on the yoga sutras, have never studied what the yoga practices are really about, which is this transformation of mind to grow quiet and still and come to know one's true self and dharma and all of that. That it's just like, you know, body beautiful and 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 who's the skinniest and who can do the the deepest backbend. And it, it breaks my heart because it's this beautiful, beautiful, rich, um, multi-layered um, paradigm that can offer so much. And it's been kind of called down to, you know, who's got the longest hamstrings? Like, who cares? Uh, I know. So um, in your book, in the very beginning, you talk about some breath myths. Can we go through them, Robin, now? And perhaps, yeah. Yeah, so you talk about breath myth, and the first one is the more we breathe, the healthier we are. I I don't have them right in front of me. I can pull them up, or you can just read them to me, and I can respond to them. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is a common one, right? Like, breathing is good. You always hear, I hear this all the time. Oh, I just love the breath. Breath's great. So, you know, this idea like, okay, so if it's good, then the more you do it, the gooder it is. Um, Unfortunately, that's not the case. And there actually is a functional healthy level of breathing, just like there's a certain amount of calories that we want to stay in that range, right? And more even good food. Let's see you're you're the healthiest eater ever, but there's still portion amounts that are important to, to, to respect, right? So if you eat too much kale, it's a problem, right? Kale's good, but too much kale is not, it's not good, right? The right amount of kale, you know? So it's like that there is actually um, a right amount of breath. And this isn't um, an arbitrary thing. This has to do with uh, the understanding that 
breath is about chemistry. It's fundamentally about balancing the two primary chemicals, chemical gases that regulate all the other chemical reactions in our body, whether you're talking neurotransmitters or you're talking hormones, um, that oxygen and carbon dioxide are the the basic ingredients that drive all the other chemical um, uh, reactions. So if they are in balance, everything else is more likely to run well. And if they are not in balance, everything else is going to be out of balance. And the levels of oxygen and carbon dioxide in our system um, are regulated through our breath. So how we breathe affects every single chemical reaction, every physiologic um, interaction in our body. Because everything's connected. (laughs) And we know that, but most of us don't practice. Like so many things we know (laughs) that we don't practice. Um, So myth two, you say taking a bigger breath oxygenates us more. Yeah. Yeah, this is one of my favorite because people have this idea like oxygen is so good. Like oxygen is everything. And oxygen is very good, provided it's buffered. That's one thing that goes into another myth we'll get to. But we it, the real the real juice of oxygen is how well, how efficiently are we able to utilize the oxygen we take in. So the oxygenation process happens at the cellular level, whether our muscles are oxygenated. And so we feel like, yeah, I want to go for a walk and, or work out, or I just have energy to get up off the couch and do something. Um, or we feel oxygenated in the brain. So like we're thinking well and clearly, and we can remember, we're not just sitting there in a brain fog. Like the signs of good oxygenation are our digestive system is functioning well because our organs are are well oxygenated. That's happening at the cellular level. It's impacted by the amount of air we take in and out, but actually we can't front load that system. We can't take more in (laughs) on the front end through the nose or hopefully through the nose and not the mouth, but take it in and then have that be like, now we have more oxygen. That's not the way it works. We take in about 21% of the air that we take in is oxygen and 16% of what we breathe out is oxygen. So you do the math. How much oxygen do we need? 20%. That's in good quality air. You know, like if we're not living in a city where the pollution is, is, is horrible and we're not living at high altitude, that's a different mix. But at sea level or thereabouts in a, in a good good environment, only 21% of the air is oxygen. We can't take in more than that. 78% of it is nitrogen. That's most of it. And when we are breathing out, we're breathing out 16% of what we breathe out is oxygen. So we only need 5%. The question is how efficiently and effectively are we utilizing that 5%? And that has everything to do with how we breathe because it has everything to do with our carbon dioxide levels. And the lower they are, the less, the lower the CO2 levels are, the less efficiently we can utilize the oxygen. Um, I'll be asking you that question after, like, how, how do we breathe properly? Like, try, trying to make it simple. Um, I'll ask you that question after the myth. So the next one's myth three, taking a deep breath means taking a big breath. Yeah. Um, oftentimes when people like the example that I gave earlier, and I was very careful not to say like when somebody's really agitated and freaking out and you come over and mostly what people say, and I didn't say it intentionally, but mostly they say, take a deep breath. And what they mean by that is, 
take this kind of big sigh breath, um, which has a particular short-term effect on um, perhaps releasing some tension and giving one a sense of relief. However, when I think of deep, there's a problem with the bigness. And when I think of deep, I think of abdominal diaphragmatic breathing, which is really getting more and more action through the lower lobes of the lungs, which is a more efficient way. Again, it gets back to what's the most efficient use of our breath energy. And since we breathe 20 to 30,000 times a day, please, we can't have this conversation without saying that again and again. Breathing is pervasive, 20, 30,000 times a day. Anything that you do that much is going to have a huge impact on you. So if you're breathing shallow up in your chest, it has a whole different effect on your nervous system, on your cardiovascular system, on your digestive system, as well as your, your mind and your, your emotional regulation than if you're breathing low in the lower lobes of the lungs in an efficient, slow, low way. So to me, deep is down low and shallow is up high and big is not something that's useful. Yeah, that's the first time I heard that term, big breath. But deep, yeah, we say that often, but we, we don't use it um, properly. So, but I understand what you're saying because I'm practicing that. So, um, myth four, you say, our need for oxygen governs our respiratory rate. Yeah, well, that's just not true. <laughs> oh, yeah. You can Google it. You can look in any physiology book on respiration. Carbon dioxide is what regulates our breath rate and volume. Um, the medulla, which is the, you could call it like the thermostat in the, in the brainstem that regulates our autonomic nervous system, heart rate and breath rate, um, blood pressure, um, vomiting reflex. These are all regulated by the medulla and the medulla gets set according to function and what it's paying attention to, it's actually monitoring second by second, breath by breath, how much carbon dioxide is in our system. And when it feels like it's too little, too little, it signals for us to breathe. This is amazing how I never heard about some of these uh, myths. This is new to me. So myth five, you say carbon dioxide is toxic and a full exhale clears space in the lungs for oxygen. Yeah, so because you haven't um, hung out in yoga classes, you probably haven't heard it, but oftentimes in yoga or even in exercise classes, I've gone to exercise classes where the, the teachers are saying, exhale through your mouth. I want to hear you exhale. When you exhale like that, you're increasing your oxygen. You're getting more oxygenated and it's absolutely the reverse. Um, so the, the less carbon, the more we breathe, the harder we breathe, the harder we exhale and breathe out, the more carbon dioxide we lose from our body. We need a certain amount of carbon dioxide in order to process and assimilate the oxygen that we've taken in. So when our carbon dioxide levels go low, which can happen through hyperventilation, too much breathing, right? Then we can take in the right amount of oxygen. We've got our 21% in, but our body can't utilize it. We actually can't get it into our tissues because the CO2 acts as the catalyst. So the big breathing, the problem isn't that we're not getting enough oxygen in, although the felt sense is we're breathless 
and we feel like we need more air, but the problem is that we've been breathing too much and not that we've been breathing too little. It's not, but the knee-jerk reaction is, oh, I feel like I don't have enough, so I'm going to keep breathing harder and harder. And of course, it's a vicious cycle because the more we breathe, the more we feel like we have to breathe. And the more breathless we feel, the more we breathe. And it goes like that on and on and on, unless we get wise and we get some education and we learn how to slow our breath and calm our breath and settle our breath and bring it down so that it's more at a functional level. Wow. It makes so much sense because I have been practicing. We don't process the breathing one moment at a time. We keep going uh, inhale, exhale. It's almost as an exercise thing, but we are not really experiencing what the air is doing to our bodies and our minds. We are not aware. Yeah, I liken it. I mean, the, the felt sense for me after doing years, decades of yoga, big breathing, like big breathing, and then getting to where I believed, I actually believed, I thought that was really good. And I was reducing stress and I was relaxing myself and not realizing that it was a habit and that it was actually having a detrimental effect on me. Mm, and, right. and, and that there was this short-term relief, which I've now likened to having a glass of wine or a little toke, or, you know, you do whatever you, you, you know, you do to take the edge off and the big size and the big exhalation breaths have that, have that to it, that quality of, oh, calming in the moment. But just like those other things have a long-term detrimental effect. It's like, if we're relying on those big breaths to calm us down, the question is, why are we needing constantly to be calmed down? Why is our system so out of balance? And why are we lacking the resilience that we aren't just able to breathe calmly, right? Just to be able to be calm. So there's that. And then I also felt in the shift in my own system, as I learned, as I trained myself to be a light functional breather, very, you know, silent, inaudible, and even to breathe lightly while exercising. I mean, it was a, it was a process, a training process, a, a conditioning process. But as I did that, what came to me is I realized, oh my God, I've been running a hurricane through my system. Like really, I realized this contrast was like, oh my God, and a hurricane does damage, right? It like is flaming and irritating. It, it tosses everything around. Nothing is in its place. It's all dispersed. And when I was breathing, when I learned to breathe in this quiet, gentle way, it was like, oh, this is really supportive to life. This is sustainable, right? My sister felt that quiet, that settling that we talked about earlier. And with that, I had an experience really for the first time of the settling of the rittis, the settling of the mind in a way that I had never experienced it with all those big pranayamic breaths that I had been taking. Oh, that's another fascinating thing you said. We often don't relate wind to breathing, to air, the air we, we breathe. Amazing. You said, yeah, we're creating a hurricane in a way inside of our bodies by breathing too harshly and unconsciously. So I love, love this approach, yeah, gentle, conscious breathing. So the last myth is six. Myth six is it is important to empty the lungs of air. 
Yeah, well, this is another one that is, you know, like I didn't make it up. There's always a residual volume of air in our lungs as a reserve. So there's about a liter, a little over a liter in in our lungs, depending on how big you are and, you know, smaller women versus big barrel-chested dude. but, but essentially this idea, which again is promoted in yoga classes, exercise classes, you know, like clear out the toxic waste, you know, clear the lungs, empty the lungs. Um, not only is that not possible, but it's, it's also not, I don't recommend it to even try to do that. It's not useful. There's absolutely no use. It's not, that's not actually the detox that we need. It's better to just not put crap in our body. Our body is actually very wise. We don't have to detox unless we put, you know, lousy stuff in, whether it's lousy stuff in the mind, you know, watching violent movies or whatever, or hanging around people who are very negative or circulating negative thoughts in our, in our own system or eating a whatever bacon cheeseburger from McDonald's, you know, like there's, but if we don't put it in then the body and we just you know, live in balance, then the body can take care of itself. It's infinitely competent. Yes, yes, and yes. So true. So uh, we're almost at the end. I have some final questions for you. Before that, in summary, would you say breathing through the nose, that's one, and then breathe light, that's how you say it, Uh, breathe slow, breathe low. And then you also talked about the short breath holds. Mm. Yeah. So I'm um, just in general, just for listeners, if you want to, the big takeaway, number one is breathe through your nose. Your mouth is meant for eating and talking. Your nose is meant for breathing. And there's so many amazing things that happen in the nasal cavity, not in the nose, but in the nasal cavity to help to prepare the air f- to be received by the lungs, moistens and warms, but it really, it sterilizes the air and prepares it for for better oxygenation, actually. And when we breathe, just think, if you're breathing through your mouth, you're breathing cold, dry, dirty air. Mm, Like, you want to do it? Go for it. But really and truly, it's not the way our bodies were designed. We're meant to breathe through the nose. Um, Breathing low, as I said, as opposed to chest breathing up in the chest, keeping the chest passive and learning how to breathe abdominal diaphragmatically, which I give a lot of tools to to practice and learn how to do that in the book. Um, Light. If you can hear yourself breathe and you're sitting and resting, you're not running up a hill or doing some some heavy lifting, there's no reason why you should hear yourself breathe. So if you're walking around, you can hear yourself gasp or then you are breathing too much. It's not necessary. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. So low, light, silent, and less. So I mentioned that one of the measures of actually of health is the capacity to go for longer periods of time without needing to breathe, just feeling more comfortable and relaxed. Like the whole system is calm. So you're not having that, got to breathe, got to breathe, got to breathe. You're just feeling like, oh, I can just kind of marinate this place of stillness, right? But that, that, that doesn't come just because you want it to. You actually have to practice and become able to do that. So short breath holds, practicing, holding the breath, Always after exhale, please not after inhale. There are contraindications for the heart and other conditions with hold after inhale. But these short breath holds are a way of acclimating ourselves and starting to get ourselves more and more comfortable with taking those pauses between the breaths and changing our chemistry so that our 
medulla in our brain isn't calling for us to breathe so much. It relaxes that sense of urgency. And in that process, short breath holds can really help with anxiety, um, with you heard me have a little tickle earlier. It's a tool I use if I start to feel that tickle and have a cough coming on. Um, people with asthma or hay fever and wheezing and congestion find that it's very, the, these are very helpful for um, aids of reducing symptoms and allowing the airways to open up and having a more relaxed and overall sense of well being um, inside. So the short breathals is a very useful technique. Yeah, and I agree. I have been practicing them now um, throughout the interview, even before, because I accessed your work. I was already practicing yeah, breathing, not, not being so um, obsessed with breathing because before it was, I was trying too hard, right? Yes. And I hear that a lot. People are, when I'm teaching this, that a lot of, especially people who have more anxiety, they actually are so reassured by that. I'm not going to tell them to breathe more because they're always striving to breathe and they're always being told they don't breathe enough. And then here I come along and I say, actually, just breathe less, breathe light. And they're like, oh, this is so much easier. I love that. I love your message, your scientific message for well-being. We need to hear that. I think especially women in a way. So I have a few final questions for you. But before I ask them, would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book? Oh, I wasn't really prepared to read a passage in my book. Is there a passage that you like? If you have a passage, I can pull my book out and um, you tell me the page and I'll be happy to read. Is there something that struck you in my book that you thought, ah, this is really important? Yeah, you talked in the book. I have I made a note here. I think you talked in the book about breathing through the mouth, that we do that unconsciously at night, that we try really uh, to breathe properly throughout the day. But then in the nighttime, automatically we are breathing, we are doing mouth breathing. Well, some people, now I want to just say not everybody is a mouth breather at night, but a lot of us are and don't even realize it. Right. Because it's unconscious and we're asleep. How would we know unless somebody told us? Right. My question was, like, how do we become aware of that, that we are not breathing properly at night? Well, one thing is if you, if you know that you are snoring or have sleep apnea, these are, these are breathing pattern disorders that are worth looking into. Um, and if you wake up, sleep, there's a couple of signs. One is that you wake up tired. You don't feel like you've been in bed for eight hours, but you don't feel rested when you wake up. Um, if you wake up frequently in the middle of the night, tossing, turning, or getting up to pee, that's another indication. And a third one would be that you wake up with a dry mouth. That's a good indication that you've had your mouth open at night. You could just do the do do for the fun of it, do a few nights of taping your mouth, um, and, and please not with muck, duct tape, but with, with <laughs> medical skin paper tape like you would you know see in the first aid section yeah. um that has a as a light hypoallergenic um to it and then you know you tape your mouth and you see how you feel in the morning um the first night that I did it I couldn't believe how deeply I slept and then I woke up and I wasn't like dying of thirst like mm -hmm. I woke up and I was like well this is weird like I usually have this big glass of water right. um, next to me and I wake up so I would wake up several times during the night to drink the water and, you know, just gulp a big, big mouthful in the morning. And like, I don't even have a glass of water next to my bed anymore because I just don't need it. 
Wow, I love that idea. So make sure it's not duct tape. <laughs> That's funny. Um, we wouldn't do that, but uh, that sounds oh, very people, interesting to me. <laughs> people ask me. It's a really common question I get. <laughs> okay, so yeah, great to know. <laughs> so I'll ask you some final questions. Uh, one, about two, yeah, three of them. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself in life as of today? Are you talking specifically about with regards to the breath? Oh, I think, well, let me just, I'll couch it in my study of the breath because the breath has been the study in the breath and the practice for me, which transforming this uh, 20,000, 30,000 times a day habit that I didn't realize was so entirely dysfunctional. Um, has really taught me a lot about myself, not just about my breath. And I knew that I was a driven person and I knew that I had a lot of, you know, sort of uh, uh, drive within myself and sort of ambition to challenge myself, to do my best. But I never saw it as clearly as how much I kept trying to push this breath practice to get like what I consider to the finish line, go, go from dis completely dysfunctional to completely, totally functional and mastery, like faster than anybody else. And I just had to keep laughing at myself because the breath, you can't change physiology faster just because you want to. You can't push the system. The system changes slowly and it requires a great deal of patience. So I, I really could see just every day in my practice how my mind would, the turnings of my mind would turn towards, you've got this, babe, you can do this. You, can, you know, and then it was like, you know, the breath would just push back and it'd be like, then I'd be gasping. It's like, okay, well, that wasn't very effective. So um, I learned how impatient I can be and how driven I can be and how much humor I need to keep laughing at myself and keep myself humble and just remind myself, just chill, babe, just sit back <laughs> and just be here for the ride. Well, that's a lesson that most of us need to learn, including myself. So you speak for us. <laughs> um, two more questions. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? You know, I actually ask myself that almost every day. That's one of my practices. And honestly, I really embrace my life as it is. I um, I feel very blessed with my family, my community, my friends. I'm passionate about what I teach, and I'm fortunate to have people who are interested in what I teach, um, which is joy. If you're if you're a teacher and you love to teach, the best thing in the world are students. So, um, and I I I am surrounded by really really um, an amazing community, both within and 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 around the yoga community, but also my my personal life. So. Um, I feel very much content with my life's choices, and I don't imagine I would do a lot different. Wonderful. That's a beautiful answer. And my last question, what are three things about life you know for sure as of today? Everything is changing. There's no fixing anything in, in the, I don't mean fixing like repairing, I mean fixing like, you know, uh, encapsulating it as this is how it is, or this is how it always should be. So remembering the impermanence of life is very, very important. Um, as bad as it might feel, or as good as it might feel, it's this moment and it will change. Change is inevitable. That the more I, we 
try and pull things closer to us that we love and hold dear and believe in and push away the things that we don't like and think are terrible, the more imprisoned we are. So that the freedom we talked about is really in learning how to unhook ourselves from all that we want and all that we don't want. And um, the more we allow fear to guide us as opposed to faith to guide us, um, the more we suffer. Thank you so much for your deep wisdom and your presence, Robin. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me to share this with you. Yeah, truly wonderful. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Yeah, absolutely. EssentialYogaTherapy.com. EssentialYogaTherapy.com. Great. And there's a wealth of information, lots of free videos for different kinds of practices, lots of information about the breath and videos on the breath that you can see, um, and 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 lots of options for um, purchasing my products or classes with me online. Um, on the website and also working with me one-on-one. I do a lot of virtual um, uh, sessions with people, particularly around the breath, but also yoga therapy as well. Um, So people who would like to do that one-on-one work, that's an option as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. Okay. Thank you. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Robin Rothenberg, please visit her website, EssentialYogaTherapy.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now. Mm-hmm.